right. Well, thanks, folks, for tuning in. You know you're in for a treat when you hear that music because it's time for another edition of the Rec Poker Podcast. This is the Chats edition where every week we get to talk to an exciting new guest, someone uh, fun from the poker world. Tonight we're going to be talking to Matt Matros. But before we throw it over to him, uh, I got to say my name's Jim Reed. I've got the best job in the world because I'm the luckiest little duck in the whole freaking world. Uh, I get to host the show here every week. You can find me at uh, Bluff Sterini in the home games or Rec Poker Jim on Twitter. Um, or you can go to rec.poker slash crew to find out about me and the rest of the Wrecking Crew because it takes a village. Uh, or you can just listen up because you're about to meet a few of the Wrecking Crew members right now, starting with the one and only Chris Jones. Well, I'm Chris Jones. You can find me 5B5 on Twitter or 5x5 on the Poker Stars home game. And I'm John Somsky. I am Poker Geek MN everywhere. And I'm Rob Washam, and I'm Rabman50 just about everywhere. And we couldn't do it without the Wrecking Crew. The Wrecking Crew are the core team of members here who help produce our content. They do some coaching. They make a lot of our videos. They uh, su suggest guests. They talk with our panelists. It's uh, the real core of what we do here. Um, but we also have to thank premium members, folks like our newest premium member, uh, Phil Razor. Boy, talk about having a last name for poker, Razor. That sounds like him. Uh, this is our first official hate join. Uh, Phil is a guy that I've been having a lot of fun with on Twitter for the last year or two, at PSR1973. And if you go and see uh, Phil and I kind of taking shots at each other, just know it comes from a place of love. And uh, it's good. he's just one of those guys. I know he can take it as good as he gives it. And that's how we kind of show some affection for some of our friends that we respect around here. So, Phil, thank you for... The hate sub. That's amazing. He just put out on Twitter, I'm joining Rec Poker Premium just so I can make Rec Poker Jim's life a little more hard. <laughs> so I can't wait. Can't wait to see what Phil has up his sleeve. So thank you so much for joining us, Phil. And of course, I also have to thank our sponsors, the Running Aces Hotel Racetrack and Casino and Mark Prashan over at Website Amp. I'm still getting over how much fun I had at Rec Poker Weekend at Running Aces a couple weeks ago and the amazing effort that John Barrows and the rest of the staff put on there for our three tournaments series and our rec poker weekend series and uh, it was just great to meet some of the, the rec poker folks i hadn't met yet and uh, put some faces to some names and get my get my ass trounced <laughs> in the tournament series <laughs> most notably by uh, two-time bounty winner uh, doug drabeck no surprises there but um okay that being said uh, those are so many of the people that we have to thank around here, as an amp, but also, of course, folks like Roger Schutte, uh, who helps out a lot behind the scenes, putting the podcast stuff together, and Diego. And it's just, it, it, if you don't know what Rec Poker is about, we're just this group of really enthusiastic amateur recreational poker players. We love learning together, playing together, and uh, forming connections that I think will last the rest of our lives. Um, one of them that I'm excited to welcome back to the show is the one and only Matt Matros, uh, no stranger to what we do here at Rec Poker. Rob Washam has already led our group through one of his books, The Game Plan, which is a great way to uh, sort of start your journey onto being a poker crusher. Uh, some great ways to think about poker tournaments and strategy in a way that gives you a bunch of easy decisions that are guaranteed to profit at the table. Well, guaranteed is maybe the wrong word, Matt. We can talk about that in a second. Um, but he's got a new book out now called The Poker Brain, which is all about uh, training yourself to just make optimal poker decisions, whether it's through critical thinking and exploitative analysis, um, you're going to use your poker brain to improve your thought process at the table. So Matt, uh, first of all, just thank you for coming back to the Rec Poker Podcast. Thanks for having me, Jim. It's always a pleasure. Well, you're kind to say. Um, and now, I was so pleased with uh, the game plan. Uh, when I heard that you had a new book coming out, uh, I was excited for that. Um, the, the, the game plan was such a great way to sort of prime someone 
for tournament poker. And when we had you on the show last time, we talked about how there were kind of some trade-offs there because the more you simplify things, the kind of the more of the more like rarefied edges you kind of have to give up. Um, just because you're trying to make it more of a, a general catch-all way to way to proceed, it, does the poker brain kind of take off from there, or how are the two books different? Yeah, well, um, they're different in kind of one obvious way, which is that the the game plan is basically just a list of rules that I tell people to follow without too much explanation. Just say do this, and you won't get killed in tournaments. You'll have a real chance to make a score. You're not going to become a professional by doing this, but you'll have as if you're only a recreational player, this will likely improve your results. The poker brain is really teaching you how to think about poker. It's much more, much less about following rules and giving you a set of tools to actually make the best decisions on your own in whatever situation you find yourself in. So in one sense, then it's a, it's a, well, it's a, it's literally a longer book and it's a bit of a more, advanced book, but I like to think it's also a book that any serious player can get into and learn a lot from. And hopefully the idea is the more you study it, the more you learn and the more you learn, the more you get the next time you read it. And it's really just a way to prime yourself for improving your decisions at the table. And even if it's only one decision at a time, I think this book can really help just about anybody. Awesome. And uh, I, I, Tell me if I'm wrong, Matt. Are we going to give away an e-copy today? I don't remember if we actually got clearance for that. We didn't, we didn't talk about that, but I'm happy to do it. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, man. It's been such a crazy few weeks. I've been flying all over the place. And, no, uh, that's, a great, that's a great idea. I'm totally happy. Uh, all right, you're the man, Matt. Uh, so if you're here watching on YouTube right now, which I see my my buddy Phil is, so that's awesome. We got a chance to hear me slagging him already once. That's fantastic. Um, uh, at the end of the show, uh, if people type the word contest in, anyone who's joining us on YouTube for free every Monday, 7.30 Eastern, you're welcome to join our contest. And uh, Matt was kind enough when I really put him on the spot there <laughs> to offer up a book to our, to our members. So that's great. No, I'm happy to do it, definitely. Awesome. Well, I know I'm putting people in good hands when I uh, put... You put them in front of your work mat. Um, how long did it take to put this together? Was this always kind of your plan for the next book? And and what does it what what did was your process different for this? Or tell me a little bit about sort of how it went along. Yeah, I mean the game plan was strange in that um, I had initially conceived of having like an introductory section and then like a medium level section and an advanced section, and it turned out that the set of rules that I envisioned for recreational players kind of became a book on its own. And so I'd originally envisioned that as the first third of a longer book, but I put it out as a book by itself. And that whole process only took about five months start to finish, which was kind of crazy. Yeah. Uh, this, this one took much longer. This took more like a year and a half. Um, and there were a number of reasons for that. As I mentioned, it's a longer book. It's a more advanced book, but also there was just simply writing and trying to work on a project during this era has proven more difficult. Uh, so it, it was, it was more of a challenge and honestly, it was more of a learning process for me because I'm not a solver expert by any stretch. And so I was sort of kind of learning some of this material as I went along and then trying to incorporate it well enough to be able to teach it to someone else. And so a lot of the material, particularly the stuff later in the book about exploiting opponents is really just based on my experience and some of the optimal play stuff is as well, particularly when I'm talking at the most general level. But when getting into some very specific solver influenced ideas, 
I had to learn some of that myself along the way. So it was a much more challenging process for me as a writer. Mm-hmm. And it's, I've always find when you're writing a book like this, as if I've ever done it, it seems to me as if you were, if you were writing a book like this, the, uh, the audience that you're writing for is really important because they're going to be playing, you know, poker players play in a variety of different kinds of games. Is there a particular, uh, you know, like tournament versus cash, uh, big deep stack, uh, you know, certain stakes that this is kind of aimed for optimally, even though I'm sure it has uh, lessons that can be applied at every stake and every game. Um, well, yes to that last point. Definitely, there definitely are things for everyone, no matter what you're playing. But yes, it's it's a geared mostly for tournament players, and the reason I say that is that I'm primarily a tournament player, so it wouldn't be fair of me to say I'm going to teach everyone how to play cash games because I did, simply don't play that many cash games. I play them sometimes, but I, I play tournaments much more frequently, um, and that's what I've spent most of my own study time on. Um, so it's for geared toward tournament players and it's geared towards, I would say, um, anyone who takes any tournament player who's taking poker seriously. So I think the concepts definitely apply across stakes. I wouldn't maybe necessarily recommend it for like the high roller tournament, um, but any kind of reasonable buy-in poker tournament, there should be plenty of stuff in there for every tournament player. And I have examples. There's 39 39? Does that make hands I have? Yes. 39, <laughs> 39 hand examples in the book. And some of them are from $20 tournaments. Some of them are from, you know, the main events. I, I think it's certainly there's some from lots of World Series events um, and everything in between. So th- there's it's there are concepts that, that apply to most level of serious tournament play. Um, and I would hope that any, any tournament player would gain a lot from it. Nice. Uh, Rob, you had yourself unmuted there. Yeah, I just, uh, we enjoyed the game plan just like immensely because of the way it took people from the beginning and just walked you through and made your decisions for you. You know, the the cards would make your decisions. The board would make your decisions. Everything, it was so uh, well put together and well structured for a recreational player that was just learning. So now you're going to the next level and now we're say, saying, okay, how do we exploit people, right? So when you were doing this, um, coming up with the optimal strategies, you talked about solver work. I don't know, did you do your own solver work or did you um, you know, piggyback on people like Michael Acevedo with modern poker theory or how did that all come about that you were able to take that optimal strategy? Yeah, I certainly didn't write my own solver, if that's what you're asking. So, no, no, no. Yeah. Did you use a solver, though? Yeah, I, mean. yeah, I, um, I don't know. if There's lots of different vers- flavors of solvers out there. And so um, I've, I use them enough so that I could gather concepts from them. So um, I didn't do a lot of really specific solver work where you kind of get the, the, the bet size is all exactly right and the stack size is all perfect and you really go very careful with the ranges. I tried to use the software that's out there that takes the optimal or close to it opening ranges with the, with the three bet range that's also optimal and, and then plug in the post-flop solutions with, with a couple different bet size options. I didn't try to take the hands I played and make sure that they were exactly 100% perfect. My goal was really more to look at what the solver outputs show and come up with concepts based on that, that you can actually use the table. Because honestly, 
finding out what the solver thinks in a very hyper-specific situation is of limited value. A bigger value is looking at lots of different solver outputs and using them to come up with ideas that you can actually, strategic ideas you can actually use at the table. So, um, so basically the short answer is I use solvers. I didn't pay for the most expensive ones or do the most highly detailed analysis possible, but I did enough solver output to be able to, to be confident about what I was saying in the book. I did, of course, also, I have read and owned Michael Acevedo's book and I find it very helpful. I also bounced a lot of the things I was saying off of um, some high stakes players I respect. My friend Ike Caxton was instrumental in making sure the book was knew what it was talking about, basically. So that's that's basically how I interacted with the solver community and with the high stakes community to make sure that what I was saying, even if it was a little simplified from what a solver would do, was more or less correct. Nice. Was there anything that surprised you, Matt, when you started to uh, look a little deeper or more closely at some of these things? Any assumptions that you had that were uh, incorrect or perhaps just needed to be calibrated slightly differently? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one surprising that jumps out at me right away is um, the size of a stack that a solver is willing to shove with. So most mm. tournament players are not going to shove over an opening raise with with a 30 or even 40 blind stack size. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying the solvers do that a lot, but they do it way more than I ever would have, would have thought they did. And so that was surprising only because nobody played, no humans play that way, really. Um, and to see that as part of the optimal solution was, was sort of eye-opening and caused me to sort of think about why that is. And it does start to make some sense in certain spots when you think about it. Like, you know, if the button opens and you have a 30 blind stack on the small blind and you have two sixes, well, you know, why not just shove? Because if you call, it's going to be very hard to play after the flop out of position with the hand where you never know where you're at. And also you might get called by fives or fours or something and double up, which you're never going to double up against those hands on most boards because unless you actually get set over set because they're just not going to, no one's going to have, you're not going to have a value hand. They're not going to be able to pay you. So it's both a way to get value out of the hand and a way to make it easier for you to play it. And the solver has figured out, and this is the part that we really didn't know. The solver has figured out that the button is opening so often that it's okay to shove in 30 blinds there. And you're not just going to get stacked way too frequently. And that's the part that I think humans are surprised by. Cause we, we sort of all thought like you can't shove 40 blinds. You, the guy, you always get called bases and Kings and you're just punting. Like, that's true, but it doesn't happen that often. That's that's the kind of calculation the solver has made. That's one thing among several, I would say, that was pretty surprising. That was probably the most surprising to me, though. Matt, you know, one thing that when I talk to some maybe less experienced recreational players or, or people who are kind of just getting into the game, they, they wonder about, you know, like, I, I'm kind of interested in this, the GTO and solver stuff, but but it won't really apply to my game because when I, the, the game I play in my, my local card room, I see six limps before, you know, somebody goes to the flop or, you know, one person raises and eight people call behind. And, and so I don't need to learn any of that stuff. So what would you say to somebody who is kind of living in that space, living in that world? And like, what are the benefits of talking about and learning some of these things for that kind of player in that kind of environment? I would say a couple of things. Uh, first of all, there's a there's a grain of truth in what they're saying in that you're not going to find a solver solution for eight lamps or a raise and six callers. So um, there's something to be said for I can't spend too much time studying solver stuff if I'm in a game like that. 
But what you can do is have, and what I try to do in my book, The Poker Brain, which is right here, uh, what, you, what, I, what you can do is understand the concepts behind what optimal play looks like. And you know why what everyone else is doing might not make sense. And once you know that, once you understand like, okay, well, if there's seven limpers, the problem is their range is not strong enough. They don't have any good hands in their range. They don't have certain hands in their range on certain flops or pre-flop. And you, by learning how to think in terms of ranges and think in terms of why you're not supposed to limp behind and using those kind of concepts, it helps you to play in games like that and helps you to take advantage of other players' mistakes. Because if everyone's limping, but you're not doing anything about it to try to punish that mistake, it doesn't really matter that much that everyone's playing that badly because if all you're doing is limping behind them and being happy about it because you're, you have position every time, that's probably okay, but you can do better. And by understanding the more concepts you understand about what makes an optimal play, the better you can take advantage of them. The other thing I would say is if, if you aspire to get better, then it's a good time to learn stuff like this while you're in a softer game. And as you start beating that game for more and more, you might want to take a shot at a more serious tournament or a more serious playing environment. And so if you already have some foundation for that, then that's, that's a great start. Instead of just like, I beat my home game without understanding anything. Eh, I'm going to try to jump up to the next level. You might find yourself totally overwhelmed, but if you put in some work beforehand and hopefully made some money along the way, even then that's a much better way to move into the next part of your game. So I would say if you want to just play the recreational home game forever and you don't care that much about improving, then sure, don't worry about this stuff. But if you're into poker and want to get better and aspire to play the main event someday, then starting with this stuff, even if you don't go too crazy with it, it can be really helpful. I love that. Um, now, speaking of which, uh, what are you like? You 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 play poker. You love poker. Um, do you think of yourself sort of more as a poker author now than a player? Are you still playing regularly? How do you kind of uh, uh, think of yourself in the poker world? Uh, I've been playing a lot of the online bracelet events from New Jersey. I live in New York. I've been driving a lot to friends' houses to play these online bracelet events, and um, I got to say, I've been um, enjoying and really excited, even if I haven't been running good. But I've been really enjoying studying poker from this somewhat new perspective for me and, you know, using everything I've learned from the writing of this book and from talking to other players and reviewing hands to applying that to my game. And I'm finding that really fun. So um, I, I think as I've been all along, really, I'm both a poker author and a poker player. There's been times in my life that I've been more of one than the other. And I'm, I think now, largely because of the pandemic and fatherhood, I've just been more of a poker author these last few years, certainly. Um, I've actually not played live poker since before the pandemic, since literally like a few days before the pandemic hit. I was in parks playing live <laughs> sessions and I've not been back since. I certainly hope to change that soon. But um, but yeah, I'm, I'm a mix. I'm definitely both. And I definitely plan on being both in the near term. I don't like to make too many super long-term predictions because uh, you know what they say about making plans and what God says about it. But, yep. um, but, but, but yeah, I, I think of myself as both and uh, you know, I'm playing the bracelet events tomorrow night. So right now I'm thinking of myself as a player, but I'll sure I'll be writing again at some point. I'll be back. <laughs> to being an author. Now, when you're, uh, when you're um, trans, when you're playing, you know, you, you had sort of a, 
a home playing online, uh, playing live a lot. I know. And that's where, you know, I think you developed a lot of this stuff. Um, now that you're playing more online, are there ad- adaptations to your game strategically or, or to other people's games that you think make more sense playing online versus playing live? Well, I, I do much prefer playing live. I've always felt more comfortable there. And I, I always have found that there's just more information to be. I mean, it's, it's, mm. it sounds weird to say because back when people had heads up displays, they would be able to know the exact raise percentages of all their opponents and stuff. And so there was tons of information if you played online, but there's lots of different kinds of information when you're playing live in terms of just being in a, being in the same space with someone and looking at them and watching them play. And I, I have a lot more experience in that than some of, some of the newer players do. And so I really think that's been to my advantage over the years. So I do miss that. Having said that, I played, I certainly played a lot online myself, particularly back when during the boom before black Friday hit, I was, um, I played a ton of, ton of stuff online. And um, I would say online is, is right now much more about the fundamentals. Um, mm. ha- but having said that, you can still definitely find a lot of people that you can exploit their specific tendencies. And if you look at my, the exploitive section of my book, which I feel like when I've done a lot of these interviews, most people have read some of the optimal section, but haven't got to the exploitive section, which is fine, but the exploitive section is fun. So jump ahead (laughs) to that if you're getting bogged down with the optimal stuff. And there's a lot of stuff in the exploitive section that is even about online play and just about looking at very tiny tendencies you notice from opponents and how to take advantage of that. So exploiting is not always about finding the fish and making sure you're doing the right thing. It is largely about that, but there's other more, much more subtle things as well. And so online is about the fundamentals, but it's also, it's more about picking apart betting patterns that of course, than it is about any other kind of tells. I know John has a question, but I just want to take one quick segue there. Um, can you just tease us with a couple of the stats if you were playing online that you would look at to say, oh, here's a place to exploit someone or here's someone who's getting out of line? What would be a couple of those key stats that we might be able to look at ourselves? Sure. I mean, you can't, it's hard to do stat. I mean, I don't know about other players. I mostly play in WSOP, which does not allow the heads up display. So you can't necessarily keep those stats. But I mean, um, some of the things I'm, one example I'm talking about is if you, if you just notice someone that's betting hands that they're not really supposed to. So someone like the example I gave in the book is someone makes a very small bet with a pocket nines and an an ace high ace 10 board. uh, And it's on the flop. And it's just, it's kind of a strange hand to be betting there, but even if it's not strange, what you can say concretely is, okay, if they're betting this hand, that means they're betting lots of different kinds of hands. They're not betting a polarized range. They're betting good hands and probably bad hands and probably medium strength hands. And so what we know from optimal play is if someone is betting a non-polarized range, if they're betting all kinds of hands, you want to be raising more often against them. So that's that's what I kind of try to do in the book is show that once you know some of the optimal concepts, you apply them exploitably. You can see, oh, they're betting more hands than I would be there and different kinds of hands than I would be. I should be raising more in this spot than I would be against an optimal player. So it's just observing little things like that that can make help you find the occasional little play here or there that you might not have seen otherwise. Well, you know, Matt, I I have first have to say that I am shocked to hear that fatherhood actually cuts into your poker playing time. (laughs) That's the first time I've ever heard anyone say that. Uh, But no, really uh, the game plan was a really easy book to read. um, And it made a lot of, I mean, an easy read made a lot of sense and you know 
you could see where it was balanced within itself. And I'm assuming with uh, the poker brain, it's going to now make it so that you can actually understand why the balance is there and what, where to go from on that point of view. From a writing style point of view, are the two books pretty similar? Because I really enjoyed the writing style of the game plan. That's, I guess, what I'm trying to say. Thank you so much for that. Um, yeah, I think what the books have in common, we talked about the differences, but what they have in common is they're both trying to take topics that are somewhat complicated and make that make them understandable, make them make sense. And so I present a concept in the poker brain, I give it its own chapter, and then I have several hand examples at the end that show exactly what I'm talking about. And so in that sense, it's very similar to the game plan in that I'm trying to show you what to do. I'm not trying to use a bunch of fancy language and fancy terminology to confuse people. I'm trying to give, give players concepts that they can actually think about and use at the table and not make it too confusing. Um, even if you don't catch on right away, they should be things, some of them should be hopefully click right away. And if they don't, hopefully they will click after not too long because yes, very much in this, the writing style is, I don't want to, sort of like a teaching style. I, another interviewer described it as a teaching style. Like you, you seem like you're presenting your, your concepts as lessons. And I, I took that as a compliment. I thought that was the way I wanted to be, to be presenting stuff because my main goal is that my readers can understand what I'm saying. My main goal is not to sound really smart. My main goal is to give people stuff that they can use. And so that was my goal with the game plan. And it's definitely my goal with this book as well, even if it's teaching how to think instead of just telling someone what to do very specifically. There, Either way, I'm trying to be clear and teach lessons that are digestible. So I really hope that if we read the new book, that that works for you as well, even if even if it's not the game plan. I'm, I'm so grateful you guys all love the game plan so much. And hopefully you will come to like this book as much as well. I'm sure we will. I mean, we talk about poker as kind of like learning a language here. And the game plan felt like sort of like a phrase book that you would buy so that you could make yourself known when you were visiting that. Spain. Yeah. Whereas now we're actually kind of learning about the syntax and the grammar, with the how the vocabulary works together and how to sort of think. Now we'll be dreaming in the language of poker because we've become fluent in it. That's, um, that's a great analogy, Jim. I love that. Oh, well, use it for the jacket, baby. Just tell <laughs> Jim sent you. <laughs> just, <laughs> just to add, we've got some big fans in the chat as well. Uh, Troy Chapman saying the game plan king. Uh, he's Chapo, Australia. So all the way from Australia is a big fan and Jack Burke's writing. Matt's writing style is excellent. So he loved it as well. So we've, we've got some fans in the chat as well. Thanks so much guys. Really? I really do appreciate it. Well, uh, uh, uh oh yeah. Sorry, Rob, jump right in there, man. I was just going to say the minute I saw the poker brain by Matt Matros was out. I added it to my list of books that we go through when we decide what the next book study is going to be. I was so excited to see this one. I thought, I'm going to try to push this a little bit. We usually do a, a polling thing where we poll about you know 16 different books to see who what people want to study. So I'm hoping this one will rise to the top and we'll get to do this one next. That's my, my goal. I hope so, too. I'd love to join your study group for a session, too, like I did with the game plan. That would be really fun. Fantastic. Yeah, well, was good times. 
we'll definitely tag you when the poll comes out and we can put a little thumb on the scales and get as many uh, people, <laughs> as many people on your list as possible <laughs> voting in that. Um, all right. Well, uh, speaking of our, our uh, YouTube members, um, we're going to let Matt go here and start talking about uh, some results in the home game club and some other exciting things coming up in rec poker. So I'll just remind if you're watching on YouTube, again, it's free to join. Um, if you type the word contest in there, we'll do a little draw with my magical nerdy dice here uh, after Matt's gone and uh, figure out who's going to win a copy of the Poker Brain, an e-copy that uh, we'll get in touch with you after the show to arrange. So folks, uh, get get in there and type the word contest in. Matt, um, where can people buy the book and where can they reach you? Where's the, your favorite place for people to connect with you? Uh, they can get the book on Amazon. It's The Poker Brain by Matt Matros. And uh, I'm on Twitter at Matt underscore Matros. Um, that's probably my most active social media account, but I have a public page on Facebook as well. And I'm pretty easy to track down in general. So I, th- I think if anyone has questions for me, I'll be pretty easy to find. Okay. Well, on behalf of everyone here in Rec Poker Nation, thank you so much. I always enjoy talking to you and getting inside that big, sexy poker brain of yours. So <laughs> I'm looking forward to our next one already. And um, I, I hope we get to do that in the book study soon, because I'd love to get into that. That sounds like a really good one. Thanks so much for having me, Jim. This is so fun. All right, my friend. Bye, guys. Have a great one. Take care. All right. So, John Somsky, our uh, uh, unfatigued, uh, untiring leader of the home game world, how are things going in your personal life and how are things going in the home game club? Well, uh, personal life, I've heard that there is such a thing, you know, and, and I plan to investigate that one of these days. So we'll see how that goes. With all your free time, right, John? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> but as far as the uh, home game club works, uh, we actually recently hit 500 members. Oh, yeah. And I had to call a few of the uh, old people who never got their accounts lined up to make room for more kick them out kick Kick them out out. (laughs) get out of here seems to be our our uh poker stars limit although i will work on them my goal is to force them to increase it because we have so many people and the demand is so high yes we're actually we're looking for a hashtag so that we can mount a social media campaign right something like uh wreck the poker stars home game club we got to pick the word wreck in there somewhere but yeah gang if uh, if we get if we get to the point where we need to you know start carrying torches and pitchforks over to the isle of man oh it's in canada now isn't it it's actually i think they're based in out of toronto now that they're a canadian they? place yeah oh. i think so they've got like some big office in toronto they were hiring recently so I'll, i've got porch uh, pitchforks my wife works at a barn we've got no shortage of uh, pitchforks available here if the time comes maybe we'll just stick to twitter and facebook at first keep it simple probably, probably wise <laughs> yeah i have a feeling you might hurt yourself with the pitchforks so. yeah probably probably anyway uh we had our no limit hold'em championship series on july 6th and rosy q Roz quarto won her first no limit hold'em championship nice. series then on July 4th, M. Babker, Michael Babker, Michael. won his sixth nightly victory of the year. And this is his 20th rec poker victory. Wow. Lifetime. I bet wow. that that's that's a real benchmark. I that's don't know impressive. how many people have won 20 or more. It's a, it's a short, impressive list, no doubt. It is a short list. Um, well, actually, I'm getting ahead of myself. Technically, that was his fifth win. And... He got 19 because then on July 9th, 
Uh, oh. He came back and won another one. Wow. So that actually made his 20th. That's even more impressive. But on July 5th, we had Mark Kiki. He won his fifth nightly victory for the month, and that's his actually 22nd wow. lifetime Kiki's, victory. My God, so, the force is yeah. strong with that family. Frogman Rick, Rick Day. Yes, Rick Day. His third nightly victory for the year. John Rick, if, 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 if Rick Day is watching, nothing makes me happier than when I look over at this beautiful huh. piece of work right here. <laughs> Rick Day, check this out on YouTube if you're there. I want you to know how much fun I have looking at this each and every day. Thank you so much, Rick. <laughs> Amazing. John Lancer, John Bensky got his fourth nightly victory for the year. Then John Lutze. Yeah. John Lutze uh, got his first mixed, daily mixed practice mm. Roadstar 33, Randy, Randy. Smith got his fourth international victory for the year. I got a chance to have a drink with Randy uh, in Minnesota there. We talked about motorcycles and uh, life and all the ups and downs of uh, touring. And uh, that was a great time. I really enjoyed getting to know Randy a little better. Nice. Yeah, I played at the table with him for a little while. And other than the fact when he took my chips, <laughs> other than that, it was all good. Uh, Dan D. Andrus G., Daniel Andrus got his first international victory for the year. Nice. And then Roadstar 33, <laughs> Randy Smith came back wow. and got his first Learn Pro Poker victory oh, for the year. Okay. So, and that's his third lifetime. So he can contact Jim at rec.poker to get his free month at Learn Pro Poker. I hope he does, because Randy, I know you you know you you feel like you've got a lot of the answers all figured out, but you would trust me, man. Go check out this free month at Learn Pro Poker. I guarantee you, if you uh, take a little time with some of the videos there, you will learn something about poker that you don't know. You will become a better poker player if you take advantage of that free month of Learn Pro Poker. The what Ryan LaPlante and the gang gets up to over there is superb. Um and yeah, you'd be crazy not to take me up on that offer. So email me, jim at rec.poker, and claim that free month. Uh, Chris, we are in July. We sent out a seminar this month that was all about seabedding out of position. Is that right? What was that like, uh, studying that and putting that uh, deep dive uh, together? I mean, that's, I think it's a really, uh, it's a really rich topic. And I think it's one that we don't think about enough. Um, and that's, and I think there's some really surprising things that come into it. And basically, if I had to boil it down to one thing is that we should be checking a lot more um, mm. when, when we're in this spot, but, but really breaking down why and when and, and what our approach is uh, in these spots when we do that um, is, I think, something that's probably for a big, broader conversation, but it's a, it's a very interesting topic. Um, and I thought we had some some good conversations and we'll have a really great follow-up. If you want to join us for the Q&A, that'll be coming up at the end of the month uh, where we can talk through some of this stuff a little bit more. That's right. That'll be on the fourth Wednesday of the month. We do our end of month Q&A with Chris Jones, uh, reviewing the subject matter of the month and talking about some spots that we encountered that time. Um, often we get some analysis from Dara O'Carney as part of the deep dive seminar. I was so pleased to meet Dara in person, um, when I was down there in Las Vegas this, this week or last week rather. And, um, I, there were a couple pros who have really, really contributed to rec poker over the years, folks yeah. like Dara and Ryan LaPlante and some other members 
Um, Kevin Mathers, who's just become a, a phenomenal wrecking crew member, joins us on our Tuesday night opas almost every week and just a fantastic resource to the poker world. And so I've given some of these uh, guys and girls a little just like thank you package which included uh, some patches and just a nice note and, and a pin. And um, anyway, so I was, I was walking by Dara in the tag team event and he had on this like hot red Hawaiian shirt, which I guess is one of his playing shirts. And it had the Unibet patch and uh, the chip race patch. And sure enough, the rec poker patch wow. was on there. He was wearing awesome. the rec poker patch. That's awesome. Oh, cool. I, I like, ah, my brain melted in real time as I was walking by. I couldn't believe it. Um, and then I saw a picture of him on Twitter, uh, chilling out with uh, David and uh, Jen Shahadi and a couple other people. And he had a different shirt on and the rec poker patch was on there, too. So I, I made sure he had a few of those because the idea that Darrow Carney is, fly, you know, flying around playing in tournaments and repping rec poker is phenomenal. And I saw Kevin Mathers also had a rec poker patch on in um, he was playing in the Super Turbo Bounty event. Uh, and I think he made the money in that one. And uh, he was wearing the patch as well. And it just warms my heart to see some yeah, of these players. That, that's pretty awesome. You know, like they, they know we're up to good here. We're trying to make the poker world better. And uh, getting that kind of support from folks like that just, uh, you know, really warms my heart. I just thought that was just the coolest thing. Um, and if anybody else is interested, yeah, our, our patches are available. Not, I mean, boy, I would love to see people repping the, repping the gear, uh, the hats, the shirts, Whatever you feel like, there's so many different ways to rep rec poker, and uh, it it's pretty cool. Uh, you know, you see folks on Twitter posting pictures on the winner's circle or uh, uh, holding up those magical two cards. Yeah, right. I got, it, I got the I got the old school and new school one. Yeah, it, it, it's so cool. So so do check us out. Um, and uh, you can all the stuff's available in the shop. If you go to our live events, sometimes we do uh, live stops alongside the Run Good Poker Tour um, or other events like that. And we always try and have some patches there and something else um, to share with people to help spread the word and let people know that you love what Rec Poker is doing. And all right. Jim, before we uh, before we close that uh, little idea, let's just, I mean, quickly, you're, you're back from Vegas. You did the tag team with George. You went oh, playing man. the main event. Yep. Like give us give us a little bit of rundown, a little bit of flavor of that. How, yeah, how I'll go. It was a magical trip, Chris. It was. It was. I I I had average results, but a well above average experience. It was. It was. I was so touched. You know, Norman Chad picking me as one of his dirty dozen sleeper picks. I just thought, like, really catapulted the entire experience into a whole new tier. Um, I was so pleased not to bust on day one <laughs> of the main event. <laughs> I, I mean, I would have if, if the right choice was there and it didn't go my way. I would have, yeah, 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 but yeah. I was so pleased not to <laughs> to, to find a bag and to it make happens it to about a third of the field, right? Yeah, so, I mean, yeah. So, no shame in it. But... No, no shame in it at all. But just I'm glad that it didn't work out that way. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I made it almost all the way to day, the end of day two. I, I ended up busting. For those who don't know, I ended up busting. Uh, with pocket eights, uh, shoving my last 12 or 13 big blinds in uh, middle position, got snapped off by uh, aces. Yeah, Rob. That was the same hand I went out on day two when I played the main event. Oh. Pocket eights ran into kings. Oh. <laughs> so I, when, when you posted that, I go, wow, that's a coincidence. That's yeah. the same exact hand I went out with. That's crazy. And I, and I ran into the premium. Yep. Yep. It was actually, I mean, it was a pretty good way to go out. Um, we were about an hour from the end of the day. So if I, if it like, if it had mattered at all to, uh, 
make day three, like if it was an actual bubble, then I probably would have been a little more careful with even with my last 13 big blinds. But making day three, all that does is feed your ego. Like it doesn't actually increase your odds of winning the tournament. And um, the way that the with the big blind ante, if I had uh, 12 and a half big blinds, by the time we get nine hands uh, in, then I'm going to have 10 big blinds. And it wasn't a question of the blinds going up too fast so much as the blind. Once you get that short, just the blinds come around often enough that if you're not treading water by at least winning a pot of blinds every round or two, you're just going to get down to the point where you don't have any fold equity at all. And uh, eights was just too high up in my list not to go for it there. You have to go for it there. Yeah. Um, So I felt increasingly content about it after, after, I mean, I hate busting. I'm a competitor. I hate losing so much, so much, but everyone who doesn't win the tournament loses. There's, there's just a field of losers. And then the one who wins and even uh, the best tournament players are losers most of the time. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I am glad, you know, there was part of me that wanted to, uh, that wanted to just sort of like make day three because it, it, playing the main event, the only question anyone ever asks is like, what day did you bust? <laughs> you know, it's like, it's, if you did, if you made money and if you didn't make money, it's like, well, how far did you make it? Um, and I, I really, having begged day one, I just loved the attitude of day two. I was not afraid to bust on day two at all. And um, I just wanted to maximize my odds of winning the tournament. Um, was a, and, there was a lot of crushers that did not make it through day one. Yep. I mean, yep. Daniel Negrano didn't make it. Phil Helmuth. I mean, a couple of the top pros, they yep. didn't make it. I mean, there was a ton of people I saw that were busting out on day one. So, hey, you made day two. You did better than they did. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And so, therefore, I'm a better poker player than them, right? That's just how that works. That's how that works. Next year, I would suggest, though, rather than thinking, you know, there was part of me that would like to make day three. Next year, go in with the attitude, oh, there's part of me that just like to win the whole damn thing. Yeah, you're right. You're right. I think you're right. Hey, I mean, if next year's a thing, nothing would make me happier. It's it's a big ticket item. I'll, I'll just yeah. be honest with you. You know, my family and I, we're not really in a position to put $10,000 up to play a poker <laughs> tournament. If I hadn't won the satellite, I don't think there's any way I would have played it. Yeah. But that being said, I mean, listen, I didn't feel like I had any kind of edge on the field there, but I didn't feel outclassed either. I thought I was making good poker decisions. I thought there was a lot of people in that tournament that are worse at poker than I am. And um, they don't have that platinum horseshoe stored the way I do. So you never know. Um, I, like, I I really do want to play it again. Like I've said, the the those mega satellites there in Vegas are a good value. There's, mm-hmm. there's, there's a lot of people taking their shots there and some of them also are not good at poker. So. Right. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. So I, it was, it was, it was an extremely valuable uh, experience. I feel like it was nice to sort of test my metal against that field. Um, it's hard to explain how luxurious that two hour level structure is. Because yeah. I've played 40 minute levels. I've played one hour levels and I thought, well, just double one hour levels. And that's how it feels. It's not, that's not even really true. It's, it's, and, and taking a break every two hours. So you come back and that's when the blinds are different. Like it's, it's actually a very comfortable mental game because you, you, you know what the blinds are at all times. You're deep enough on day one 
that you're really, it's like a cash game, except for the simple part of just making sure that you don't make a huge catastrophic uh, error. Um, and yeah, I, I, I would, I can see why people want to play it every year. It's a phenomenal tournament. It's hard to, it, it's weird to say it's a great value given that it costs $10,000 to enter, but I see what they mean. Um, you know, any tournament that has a lot of satellite players is typically going to be a good it's, tournament. It's the only 10K in the world that's going to be that. I mean, it's not that it's easy and there's lots of, all the world-class players are there too, but it's the only right. 10K in the world where you're going to have some very, not very good players as well. Yeah. The percentage and, of of recreational players playing that is much higher than any other 10K event. Yeah. Right. I mean, right. I might play that event someday. Yeah. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> well, and I think it's it also be, if you're if you've played any live poker at all, you can kind of tell who the players are that really know what they're doing and who the other players are. And if you just take the appropriate actions against those kind of two classes of players, I think that's going to help a lot. And uh, um yeah, it's it, but not only the structure, but also the dynamic. The dynamic is very unique because in every tournament, it's about applying pressure, making good hands, and making good bluffs. But in this one, people really don't want to bust. Like, like it, it. There's an almost unique amount of fold equity involved, and that really changes not only how you bluff but how you value bet, um, because you really have to target a different part of players ranges for both of those things than you would otherwise. And that really changes the class of hands that you value bet with and that you bluff with and also the sizes that you use. So it was one good note for me to really drill into some of that stuff for next year. I kind of did myself a disservice by not really studying enough for this. I've just got so many things in my life right now. I, I was not able to prioritize prep and study for it in the way that I'd like to. Um, but I did kind of feel like I know the areas now that I need to work on a little bit more. And uh, that gives me a lot of confidence about getting in there again and sort of seeing what, what I've got against the, against the field. So we've got some cool uh, comments here in the chat. Troy Chapman says, uh, tell us about one big hand in the main. I think I'll, I'll prepare some thoughts on some of the hands so that we can go over them in a forums edition, maybe. And uh, have a little, have, I don't want to just talk off the cuff about them because I haven't had a chance to really digest or, or do some work in the lab and see how I feel about it. But <laughs> Phil. I see what you're saying. Phil, yeah. Phil pipes up and says, you're really good at losing, Jim. Yeah, that's right. That's what I'm talking about. That's my guy. That's my guy. I know, that, Phil, and so I'm so glad that you believe in me, brother. Thank you so much for that faith. Um, that, that, that. <laughs> that unending that unending faith that i get from you phil thank you so much um but one thing uh troy i will say so instead of talking about uh one like deep run through of a hand i'll just talk about sort of the dynamic a little bit so it's such a weird situation where let's just talk about three betting a, a little um because of the way because of how deep you are and because players don't want to bust there's basically two kinds of players out there. They're the ones that are going to call three bets and the ones that are not going to call three bets. And no one is bluff for betting. I mean, there, some people might be bluff for betting at a hugely low frequency, but almost every four bet is a value for bet. And I found, so on day one, the player to my left was three betting me 
every time I opened. I think it's because I have the words REC printed on my shirt and hat. Um, but he decided that I was someone that he was going to pick on. Basically, every time I opened, uh, he would three bet me. And so that did limit, my, you know, made me open a little tighter. And also with the kind of hands that I was either going to call a three bet or shove with. Um, I never got a good candidate. Well, I got one good candidate for a four bet and I did not have the balls to do it. And I called instead <laughs> and did not, did not improve. I, in fact, I didn't make a single, I made one set in the entire uh, series, which was surprising to me because I, I play a lot of pocket pairs as a cash player. I like to get pocket pairs to the flop because it's off. And when you're deep like that, you've got the right implied odds to do it a lot. And so most of the hands that I called with were pocket pairs or like suited aces that were, good enough to call, not good enough to four bet for value, too good to four bet as a bluff. Um, and just never really got good flops for them, unfortunately. And and the structure is so deep that like there was this one hand where I called a, a three bet with, I think it was ace 10 of hearts, which is about the worst ace I'm calling, but the suitedness and the Broadway ability is just put it in that range of, all right, let's see a flop. I, I don't like playing it out of position, but I was getting three bet a lot and just kind of promoted it in my range a little bit. And the flop came three clubs. And it's just so easy for me to have the clubs there as, as easy as the hearts. Um, so he came out with a bet. I ended up uh, check raising a bluff. Uh, he continued. It was probably one of the hands I wish I had back because the second time I play the main, I'll know you just, just fold. Just there's going to be a better opportunity when you have an ace of clubs in your hand to do that. Uh, and you don't have to kind of like manufacture these spots because you can just fold and turn it down. Even though it's like, this is a good board for me. It's not a great board for him. I should be able to get it through here sometimes. But this didn't have to be one of those times. And I should have waited until I had a blocker to his having a strong hand. Um and yeah, that was, that was one thing about there. The one thing I wish I'd, well, I'm not sure that's even true, but three betting and the three betting dynamic was really interesting because I also use three bets. I wasn't three betting any value hands at all. Um, I was only three betting hands where I wanted folds against the players that were going to fold all the time. So I three bet King 10 offsuit, a seven offsuit, a lot of uh, junky aces and Kings and called with some of those other ones. And I think I three bet Kings exactly for value because I just hate calling and seeing an ace when you don't at least make them pay for that. Um, but I three bet Queens once in a spot and correctly folded to a four bet. They showed me the aces afterwards, which made me, made me feel great. And um, I think I just, I honestly, I think Queens plays a call uh, a lot of the times in, in that dynamic because you, no one's proceeding with the kind of hands that you're normally crushing in a spot like that, because people are just overfolding. Um, so that'll be something I'll be interested to to look into a little more closely. Again, in that dynamic, you know, position matters and where their original opening raise was. Uh, this one was under the gun. So I think it does really change. Uh, it does really change the hands that you choose to three bet and it should change the hands that you choose to call three bets with. Um, so that was one thing. I, that was one thing I'll, I'll be interested to kind of do a little more review on. But other than that, I didn't really see that many situations that were unconventionally affected by the structure or the dynamic. Otherwise, just the normal stuff you think post-flop. People don't shove light very often, except for those few players that do. Right. I had, yeah, uh, yeah you got to look out for that. I had, I had a nice double up on day one. 
where um, I three bet Ace King and got called out of position and then got called by the original Razor as well. Flop came 10 Jack Queen with two diamonds. So an above average flop for Ace King. And the, uh, the out of position player just shoves. And um, the other player folds. And I've got the nuts. I think I had the King of Diamonds as well, which made me feel pretty good about it. So I call. And they had two diamonds. Yeah. I know, I know. I just know. Have any other hand, please. I have any it. other hand. <laughs> um, so we held up. The, I think it came heart, heart, and it did not matter. But like he went home on that hand, and if and if a diamond had come, I would be down to like four big blinds or something like that. Um, and so it's it's like if I didn't have the nuts, you know, like like it's a very different, it's, it's a different game. Like the fold equity really, really matters. And I, and I find that makes the biggest difference when it comes to players that will three bet a wider range uh, that I noticed that for sure. Um, so let me see. We got some other comments here in the chat. Uh, Philip Phil says the only thing I have left after the trip to running aces is my rec poker patch. Oh yeah. <laughs> so I've got some company in losing them, Phil. I'm glad to hear that. Um, yeah, less than one month until run good in Council Bluffs. I heard that was going to be going on. Um, I don't know if I've got enough points with Mrs. Bluffsterini to make it down ah. personally, uh, but I, I, we often send a pretty good contingent down to uh, Council Bluffs. Something tells me uh, Tim misclick Donkey Fritz will be there. It's right in his oh, for backyard. Sure. That's in his backyard. Yeah. Yeah. So that'll be fun. And uh, it's such a great, such a great series. Those guys have a great time every time uh, they go. Um, yeah, Troy says uh, we should do a run through of some of your hands in a group session. That's a great idea. I think we'll do that. Uh, we'll definitely take a look at at least a couple in a forums edition coming up. And um, if people are interested on Twitter, you can look me up at Rec Poker Gym. I tweeted out a bunch of hand updates as we went by uh, using this great hand history keyboard um, that Pet Vet Kim Kilroy showed me about. Um, so that was a good one. Uh, yeah, thank you, Josh. I think that would be fun. Um, Troy says. I think the feeling of knowing you can mix it up with the table is such an underrated feeling. Uh, like you're not outclassed is a good feeling. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I did feel very comfortable um, just taking the spots that came along. And uh, it is. Yeah, it was. It, that's You said it very well there, Troy. That's exactly correct. Yeah, you don't have to force it. Uh, Martha says, what a fun show tonight, guys. Thanks. Well, thank you, Martha. <laughs> be nice to catch up with Martha again sometime soon, I hope. Uh, all right. Well. Anything else we should uh, chat? Oh, we got to do the contest. All right. So we're, I think we, I'm going to just scroll through the list here. We're going to start with Jack Burke and work our way down from there. I'm going to roll the die here now, my little magical nerd die. It's a one. Oh, my God. I even changed the die. It was a it's one. It's always a one. I know, but I changed the die this time. I used to completely, do, I don't know if you can tell. This one's, it's eight-sided. I usually use a different number. Um, so here we go. Uh, it's it we're so it really pays. People have to go in there first because it's yeah, always coming one. It's coming one a lot. So let me see who was uh, th that was Jack, right? Okay, yep. Jack. Uh, you know what's up, my friend? Send me an email, Jim at rec poker, and I'll get in touch with Matt Matros, and you can claim your free copy of the Poker Brain. Not that uh, you and Jill need any help in that department. I had I got to meet up with uh, Jill Burke. Jack and Jill uh, are both Rec Poker premium members. They went up the Rec Poker Hill and um, had a great time meeting with Jill again. And uh, yeah, we, oh, we, had, we also had that awesome meetup with all sorts of cool, fun people down there uh, on the 27th. 
And it's just, I, I, I'd love to get more involved in some of the live stuff we do. It's hard traveling from Canada is different than traveling within the United States. So I don't know uh, how often I can come along on some of these road trips, but we always seem to send a good contingent and uh, it's, it's surprisingly fun. Like I went into it expecting it to be very fun and I was still surprised at how much fun it was other than Phil, who's a big jerk. Uh, but most of the other people that came by were really class, class acts and uh, gentlemen and ladies uh, other than Phil. All right. So um, anything else we should uh, chat about here, gang, before we roll on out of here? I don't think so. Well, then I would be remiss if I did not mention our wonderful sponsors, the Running Aces Hotel, Racetrack and Casino, and Mark Rashawn over at Website Amp. And of course, uh, John and Rob and Chris for helping me out in the booth here. Matt Matros for giving a copy away. That's fantastic. And uh, Troy, Phil, Martha, Evilroy, Josh, uh, John, the rest of you. Bye.